Good evening. Hard to believe we're at the end when we were just at the beginning. And really, we're also just at the beginning. Or the middle. (laughs) I like to think of this as the middle point of the retreat. Well, tomorrow really is the middle point of your 10-day retreat. So it's a five-day intensive meditation, five-day intensive integration. This is this is just the this is the preparation part of the retreat, and then the next half is the is the practice part of the or the performance part of the retreat. (laughs) (laughs) So you get to see how you live and breathe this stuff. You know, when you're with your kids and your partner and your colleagues you don't like very much, or your you know whatever situation you're, you're going back to. Or how, do we, how do we live this stuff is really the, the perennial question. So that in the Zen tradition, they have that metaphor of the, the ox herder, you know, the 10 ox herding pictures, which I'm sure some of you are familiar with, where you, the, the seeker goes out in search of the... the um, the ox and goes on a long journey through the mountains and the forests and eventually finds the ox and then spends a long time training and disciplining the ox of the ox of the mind and then uh, eventually doesn't stay stuck up in the woods but comes down back into the marketplace. And so tomorrow you go back to the marketplace and uh, see how you do. <laughs> So we'll give out report cards that we'll ask you to fill in in five days on your performance. Well, we don't, but we could. (laughs) If we were doing research, we would, (laughs) which we should sometime. (laughs) Yeah. So I'm sure you, you all have some thoughts and feelings about that, about... You know, maybe you, maybe you, you know, you, you know. Before the retreat, you were dying to get here. When you were here, you were dying to leave. And now it's time to leave. You're dying. You want to stay. <laughs> the mind is so fickle, isn't it? <laughs> it's so fickle, depending on circumstances, on conditions, and it's always changing. You know, I want this. Uh, I think I want that. Actually, I definitely want this. No, I hate this. <laughs> so, you know, you've done retreats before, and many of you, this is a familiar journey of transitioning from one form of life to another form of life. It's all life. It's all just the same phenomena, the same senses, hearing, seeing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Maybe a little more thinking on the other side, but so our practice in some ways is the same. It's really no different. I know for myself, after having done so many retreats, that um, 
there's less and less of a difference. It's just, it's just life. <coughs> One is slower than the other. You know? One I get cooked for, which I really like. <laughs> and I get, you know, someone does the shopping and the cleaning. And it's great. <laughs> Part of me wants to sign up for that life. And it comes with these rows, these dresses you have to wear. And, you know, just, you know, I don't do well with orange clashes with the... So, yeah, so we go back into it. And what is different is that the, is the, is the culture is different and the values are different. You know, the, life, the, the speed, the complexity, it's pretty simple here. We pare it down. You don't shop, you don't cook. You might clean a little. That's about it. And so the mind gets to, to slow down and rest and look to more what's intrinsic, what's more essential. And when in the midst of our lives, what happens is, you know, they're so often full, complex, demanding that they, they take that, just the surviving and coping and raising children and working and all of that takes so much of our attention and life force that there's not so much to, there's not much turning back to the radiance of awareness, that's for sure. You know, when you're on the freeway and you're late for work and, you know, you're in a meeting you know, what awareness. We hope some survives. So that is the challenge. That's why we practice. That's why we come to these places that are, are laboratories. So we can immerse in awareness and feel into the, the fabric of consciousness and look more closely at what causes suffering or happiness peace or bondage. So hopefully you've, you've seen a little into the workings of your mind and body and reactivity and ease and awareness and that will inform you as you continue your life and your practice and you'll forget probably 90% and that's okay and a little bit sticks and we keep practicing a little bit sticks. <clears throat> so what's important to remember is that the practice is in you. You know, we often make this mistake of thinking, oh, it's at Spirit Rock, you know, or it's in the retreat, or it's in a teacher, or it's in some body of teaching somewhere that I have to, you know, that I, you know, it's, I can only get there at Spirit Rock. You know, it's like the fast track to... You know, whatever, you know, the express bus, which it might be in a certain way. You know, there's a, a certain way that retreats expedite uh, process and, and awareness and insight, which is why we do them and why we suggest doing them and, and do longer ones and because they, they can provide incredible uh, incubators for awakening, um, as can our life. You know, we can wake up anywhere. The same capacity, the same reflective quality, the same uh, opportunity, really, to see, you know, the mind that's bound and the mind that's free, you know, and it happens as much in our life as it does here. We see those tendencies, we see the views, we see the, the, um, the, 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 the ego tendencies, the habits, the grasping, whatever that's 
obscuring that innate radiance. Lots of opportunity for seeing probably more obscurations. But to remember that you know this is in you, awareness is within you. It's, your, it's the nature of your mind, and kindness is the nature of your heart. We haven't really emphasized so much the, the, the kindness practices, but it's latent within mindfulness practice. This is from Thoreau. He says, "What we do best or most imperfectly is what we have most thoroughly learned by the longest practice, and at length it falls from us without our notice, as a leaf from a tree." What we do best or most imperfectly is what we have most thoroughly learned by the longest practice. So we practice just like a good basketball player or soccer player until it becomes natural and then becomes innate. We don't even think about it anymore. We're just embodied. Right? The idea of, oh, I've got to remember to be in my, in my feet now because I'm walking at the office and I'm, you know, I'm going to be really mindful. Everyone's going to be really impressed how present I am. You know? <laughs> No, it just happens. It just, you know, it just becomes, you know, who we are, as it were, because we've practiced it enough. You know, and I, I appreciate, you know, having practiced a while now, I appreciate the, this, all those seeds that have been sown, whether it's just learnt, just knowing how to be in my body or seeing the reactivity in my mind or the views that cause suffering or the limitations of the critic, uh, whatever ways, you know, just, it's, it's more second nature. It doesn't require so much effort. So, and, and sometimes I think it's helpful to shift the frame from, sometimes we leave a retreat and there's a little bit like, oh no, I'm going to lose something and I've got to hold on. I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm not going to check my cell phone. And, and I'm not going to go to work. And I'm just going to, you know, like, you can just get lost. <laughs> and be nice to me, because I'm very sensitive. You know. <laughs> and, you know, rather than doing that, of course, you know, which is just fear and grasping, which is the totally opposite of what we're cultivating, we can think about, uh, turning it around and actually giving it away. Yeah? That, that we, we've been given tremendous gifts and blessings by the fact that we've been on retreat. And so um, we, can, we, can, we can return that favor by sharing the fruits of our practice, by, uh, um, by not holding on, by giving the gift of our presence and listening and, and attentiveness to what's around us, to what's needed. It's a beautiful gift when you go home to friends, partners, family, neighbors, colleagues, or whatever it is, dogs you go home to. Um, you know, it's one of the lovely things is, is you can turn the light that's been here inward to whoever you meet. Yeah? Not to blast them with your radiance. You know? <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Oh, I mean, a spirit rock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just, just get him some chamomile or something, you know. So. <laughs> but we can share, you know, the joy and the the um, the abundance. There's a there's a beautiful poem from uh, Palestinian Palestinian poet Naomi Shihab Nye, and. Uh, 
she's speaking about what happens when we, you know, when our heart is full. She says, it's difficult to know what to do sometimes with so much happiness. Happiness floats. It doesn't need you to hold it down. It doesn't need anything. Happiness lands on the roof of the next house singing and disappears when it wants to. You are happy either way. Even the fact that you once lived in a peaceful treehouse and now live over a quarry of noise and dust cannot make you unhappy. Everything has a life of its own. It too could wake up filled with possibilities of coffee cake and ripe peaches. And love, even the floor which needs to be swept, the soiled linens, the scratch records. Since there is no place large enough to contain so much happiness, you shrug, you raise your hands, and it flows out of you into everything you touch. You are not responsible, you take no credit, as the night sky takes no credit for the moon, but continues to hold it and share it, and in that way be known. So to share whatever fruit, joy, bounty, love, light, well-being, peace, that's present. What would it be that? To, to, what would it be like to hold on to, to to turn in that way? To think of this going home as an opportunity, as a as a as a as a, as a place as life is to practice generosity. So we so we're cultivating this intention to. Bring forth our practice, and just like the beginning of a new year, ending a retreat, be it's it's a way to start over. Right? We're always starting over, really, but there's some markers that, that can be different, and it may be that you take some things, some reflection, insight, awareness, knowing, experience, and you and you you have an intention to bring that forth in your in your life. Maybe to be a little more forgiving to yourself. Uh, or a little more kind with others. Uh, whatever um, seed has been sown. But to think about the intention, because I mean, the, what intention we have does to, to some degree affect our direction. As Yogi Berra once said, unless you change direction, you will continue in the same direction. <laughs> so the question is, what direction are you going in, and do you want to go in that direction? So this is from Ajahn Chah, who was less into meditation and more, I don't know if this is exactly true, he was as equally into being present, waking up in ordinary day-to-day activity as he was with meditation. He said, um, sitting for hours on end is not necessary. Some people think that the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. I have seen chickens sitting on their nests for days. <laughs> I don't know. There may be some wise chickens. I don't know. Your practice should begin as soon as you wake up in the morning and continue until you fall asleep at night. Not, you know, not in your meditation. Don't be concerned about how long you can sit. What is important is only that you keep watchful whether you are standing, working, or going to the bathroom. Even in the bathroom, sometimes you know, for people in with crazy work schedules, 
that's the only place they can, you know, take a moment where they're not expected to be, you know, looking at two screens at once and on the phone. So, pee here now. You know? <laughs> I say, you know. I was once working with a CEO, COO of a very large uh, tech company, who shall remain nameless. And um, I said, you know, and I, I, I said two things. So we were talking about her crazy schedule. And I said, what about, you know, taking a pause between meetings? You know, I mean, her life is just, you know, back-to-back meetings from, you know, 12 hours a day. And she said, well, that's great, but I have someone assigned who comes at the end of the, the meeting to give me the brief for the next meeting. There isn't a space. I said, what about the bathroom? She said, no, I always take my device to the bathroom to catch up on my emails between, between, uh, between meetings. I said, how's that working for you? She said, it's exhausting. I said, yeah, it will be. So, um, you know, but the point is to take this practice everywhere, wherever we go, as we've been doing here. I mentioned, but, you know, I think a really great place to practice here is in the bedroom, right? In, in, In the bedroom here in that usually it's, you know, we can close the door and we can kind of be off duty. It's like we're all very mindful walking to the bedroom door, opening the door, closing the door. Oh, God. Pick your nose and scratch. Get your books out. Music on. And you open the door and mindful, bowing. Right? That's home practice, right? That's, that's where, you know, so to, can we extend that practice into uh, the, the, the secret cloisters of our private life, you know, where we might be not quite, you know, there's something, it's, again, it's, it's the, the value of Sangha, um, you know, it, it, there's, a, there's a support, you know, as much as we might, there may be some group pressure and external, you know, wanting to fit in, it also does encourage us to practice. You know, or we do see someone walking down to the lunch, uh, you know, down the hill for lunch, and they're incredibly present and mindful and not racing like you are to get to the. You know. <laughs> and he's like, "Oh yeah, right, mindfulness, slow down." Right? So there's something very valuable about that, and, and we'll talk about um, the, the the place of sangha tomorrow, going home. So you know. And as much as I'm talking about taking the practice home, I also want to talk about being realistic and being uh, wise with your aspiration. You know, it's uh, to not set yourself up for failure, which is very easy to do because we can get really, really inspired by practice and and uh, the possibility of the loving heart and clear awareness and letting go and all these beautiful qualities. You know, and then we, uh, you know, we get down to the bottom of the hill, and our shuttle is late, and we get really anxious, and then we even gets later, and by the time the shuttle bus comes, we yell at the driver. You know, we barely we haven't even left Spirit Rock land, and we've already gotten frustrated and angry. Right? Happens, life, real life, where you get down to the parking lot, you got a flat tire, and you know it happens, or your battery's flat, or you know, who knows what. So can we be, uh, yeah, realistic or 
um, reasonable with our aspirations. So we're not setting ourselves up for the, for the newly developed Buddhist critic who will happily um, tell you when you're not being a good Buddhist or very mindful or very compassionate or whatever the new criteria for self-evaluation and self-flagellation is. So I read this poem. I'm sure most of you have heard it, but it's fun anyway. This is about not setting up an, an unreasonable aspiration. Actually, I'll read this different poem because it's a little less well-known. This is from, um, uh, what's his name? Billy Collins, talking about the perfect uh, dog. The way the dog trots out the front door every morning without a hat or an umbrella, without any money or the keys to her doghouse, never fails to fill the saucer of my heart with milky admiration. Who provides a finer example of a life without encumbrance? Thoreau in his curtainless hut with a single plate and a single spoon, Gandhi with his staff and his holy diapers. Off she goes into the material world with nothing but her brown coat and her modest blue collar, following only her wet nose, the twin portals of her steady breathing, followed only by the plume of her tail. If only she didn't shove the cat aside every morning to eat all his food, what a model of self-containment she would be. What a paragon of earthly attachment, detachment. If only she were not so eager for a rub behind the ears, so acrobatic in her welcomes. If only I were not her god. So, um, so thinking about the principles for going home, right? So one of the one of the one of the principles that we practice is letting go. Right? We let go of this lovely place. We let go of this lovely community, this lovely form, the lovely silence and the beauty and the food and this, the, the ambiance of spirit. It's a lot of letting go. Letting go of the, the, the schedule and a lot of sitting and silence. And, you know. So to really welcome that process, right? Cause it's really easy to like, oh no, I'm not going to talk. Right? And let, to let go of the states that you've developed, right? There might be a lot of. If we don't let go, then we don't. Then we resist what's coming. Right? If we're holding on to this, then we can't welcome that. And since life is unfolding, we want to be able to welcome that which is not what was, because it's gone. Right? So easier said than done. But so notice where you, where you're holding on to states, qualities of mind. And of course, all those beautiful qualities of mind that you've tasted and touched and dwelt in arose partly because you were able to let go. You weren't clinging. You weren't going like, I'm going to get calm. I'm going to get calm. I'm going to get calm. I'm going to stay calm. Right? That's just grasping. Right? But we might do that. So this is from the onion, great source of wisdom. Um, so this is, this, is, this is some conversation about a yoga championship. Uh, and in Lhasa, Tibet, employing the brash style that first brought him to prominence, Sri Dananaji Bikram won the fifth in annual international yogi competition with a record, world record point total of 87.3.6. I am the serenest, Bikram shouted to the estimated crowd of 20,000 yoga fans, vigorously pumping his fist. No one is serener than Sri Dananaji Bikram. I am the greatest monk of all times. 
Bikram averaged 1.89 breaths a minute during the two-hour competition, nearly 0.3 fewer than his nearest competitor, second-place finisher, and two-time champion Sri Salil Dahamagupta. <laughs> and he goes on. You know. We don't need to become you know, a meditation superstar. Uh, the defeated Gupta denied that Bikram's taunting factor of poking his little toe was a factor in his inability to attain transcendental, den- transcendental consciousness. I just wasn't myself today, Gupta commented. I wasn't any self today. I was an egoless particle of the universal no soul. <laughs> On it goes. So that's not what we want to be doing. So in terms of the the context of the path, right? So as I mentioned at the beginning, there's a, the one way of understanding the path is this threefold way of cultivation of ethics, cultivation of meditation, cultivation of wisdom. Right? And then the path, and in the, on the retreat, we're we're mostly in the middle factor, right? We're cultivating wise effort, wise concentration, wise, wise mindfulness, right? The three parts of that's the meditation component of the eightfold path, which are in support of wise understanding. Clarity, wisdom, insight into truth, into, into understanding self and causes of suffering and whatnot. That, in, that, that wise understanding informs uh, how we want to move in the world, our aspiration, our intention. Which is why this is a, is a healthy, wholesome place to reflect on how we want to move in the world. How we want to take the goodness of our practice. So a story that I have always cherished is from uh, uh, the poet in the Sufi tradition, Hafez. And uh, it's a story about how we take our practice home or how how we experience the fruits of our practice. And unlike being the world champion, you know, uh, meditator. Um, there's a story from Hafez where he's uh, receiving students and one student comes in and says, um, uh, I want to tell you about my mystical experiences in meditation, my visions of God and, 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 you know, what, and whatnot. And so um, uh, he tells Hafez all these great things are happening in meditation. And then uh, Hafiz says, well, that's great, um, but how many goats do you have? And the man says, goats? I'm telling you about my sublime visions of God, and you ask me about goats? Like, what's your problem? And Hafiz sort of persists in, in asking him these questions about his life and his farm and his animals and his children and his parents and how he takes care of people and what he does with the birds in winter and his, you know, all kinds of things. And uh, so the man answers all these questions, a little bit frustrated, and, and, and Hafiz says, well, you asked me if these visions of God are true, and I say they are if they make you more kind and more caring to every person and every creature that you encounter. That the proof of the putting of the, of the awakening of the insights of the, these uh, illuminations are that they, 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 they translate, they manifest, they have an impact in our day-to-day life in a very simple, ordinary, extraordinary kind of way. So, so I'm going to talk a little bit now about, about, about some of the, the ripples in that, both in terms of the, 
the practice and uh, going home, particularly in relationship to the the last part of the the Eightfold Path, the, the, or the first part really, which is um, the ethical part, how we live in the world, right? what we do with our actions and our choices. Right, going back to this it, this conversation about is it, are we just accepting, or are we also engaging in wise action, and wise speech, and, and wise livelihood. And um, so there's a lot to say about it, and I'll say a little today and a little tomorrow. But what there is to say is, you know, on the retreat, in our meditation, in, in the more introspective realm of awareness, we are, we are cultivating more a, I don't like to use the word passive, but a receptive quality of attention. We are simply noticing things coming and going. We're less intervening, less fixing, controlling, manipulating, um, mostly allowing the, the, just the, the flow of experience and looking at our relationship to it. As we go back into our lives, into our more active lives, you know, th- there are many more decisions and things to, to act upon. You know, whether it's taking care of our kids or choosing about work or money or what we do with our time or our investments or what we do in our conversations, how we show up, how we talk, how we listen, who we engage with or not. And so, you know, so, so it becomes more complicated. And I want to read this story. It's, it's, it's a somewhat, um, it's, it's, it's an amusing story, but it's also a very painful story because it's, it's exploring uh, a young Lama's experience of racism, but it's also pointing to his, his very pragmatic way of living in the world informed by practice. So this article is quite a, quite old. So I imagine this this Lama, who's who's about thirteen, um, is now in his in his twenties, uh, Tibetan trained, Western born, lived in India in a monastery, also now back here, and he's being interviewed by um, Tricycle, I think. And uh, the interview says it must be hard enough to be a thirteen-year-old boy in America not to mention a Tibetan Lama. How do your friends and family treat your connection with the Dharma? It's kind of weird. I have two older brothers and they tease me about it. They call me Shrimpoche. The kids at school don't know I'm a Lama. I would never tell them. So that, in case you didn't know, that was a riff on Rinpoche, Shrimpoche. Why wouldn't you tell, why wouldn't you tell the kids? Oh, I get distant enough as it is being Asian. They call me names like Nip and Gook. It's not like when I was growing up in India. Everyone here in Wyoming is white. I consider it a good day when some goof in a pickup truck doesn't try to run me over. How do you deal with people trying to hurt you? Well, it's pretty safe around here, but we Asians need to stick together. Some of my best friends in our gang are Chinese. It's strange to have Chinese friends when my family has been treated so badly by the Chinese, but this is America. I've got to live here with my own karma. Some skinner doesn't care whether I'm Tibetan or Chinese. He just wants to stomp on my head. You're in a gang? Well, it's for protection. It's like if a guy threatens one of us, there's nothing we can do on our own. But, there's nothing, but by getting a bunch of us together, we can defend ourselves. We don't have guns, we don't do drugs or rob people. Can we talk about something else? <laughs> sure, do you like your students? 
Yeah, they're all right. They're kind of funny. It's like they say they come for the teachings, but when they get into the interview room, they talk about other stuff. What other stuff? Well, they mainly talk about the opposite sex. Men talk about the problems with women. Women talk about their husbands and boyfriends. I don't get it. It's like I have little enough times it is with school and Little League and my chores, and they want me to be a shrink or something, and I'm only 13. I've got girlfriends and all, but what do I know about relationships? So what do you tell them? I talked to my dad about it, and he gave me a, a stack of business cards from one of his psychology friends, psychologist friends. I just had my, I just had my students one of the cards when they start talking about relationships. I put my name on the back of the card, and whenever my, whenever my dad's friend gets a new client, he takes me and my brothers and sisters to Dairy Queen. It's cool. <laughs> Buddhism is no big deal. It's like being a doctor. There's suffering, you diagnose it, give someone a prescription, and hope they don't, and hope they go to the drugstore. No one in America wants to go to the store, though. They all want to be pharmacists and sit around discussing types of medicine. What's with that? Take some medicine, come back next week. I mean, don't get me wrong, Buddhism is choice. So you're qualified to teach? Sure, I mostly give Tonglen, this giving and receiving, suffering and breathing out, uh, peace. White light. It's what I think works best at our times when people are trying to kill you or too many, changes that, too many changes are happening at once, which seems to be the case in this country. You're basically like a giant filter, like an air conditioner. You suck in the bad air, breathe out the pure air. I see myself like an air conditioning repair dude. I teach people how to filter and cool things down. So if you can cool things down, why, don't, why do you need to be in a gang? Well, it's a samsara and nirvana thing. If some guy disses me, I can just tell myself that he doesn't really exist separate from me. You know, it's just like he's dissing himself. That works fine. But what happens when he starts talking and starts beating on me? You need to take care of yourself so you can don't get killed. We live in samsara and spacing out about nirvana doesn't help anybody. Don't you see any contradictions in that? I mean, like the Dalai Lama, for example, constantly teaches nonviolence despite having been terribly oppressed all his life. Oh, yeah, right. The Dalai Lama is an awesome old dude and a killer teacher. And he's got like a dozen bodyguards around him who... What do you, when he's traveling, what do you think would happen if some butthead pulls a gun on his holiness? Do you think these dozen bodyguards will practice nonviolence or bust some karate moves? No way, man. A bodyguard sees this dweeb with a gun and he's going to pop a cap in his ass. <laughs> so wise action, you know takes on many forms and sometimes is very proactive, you know. And so, you know, it's an, it's a, it's an interesting story because here, here's this, you know, young man, Tibetan, trained in Asia, dealing with, with, with racism in Montana and very pragmatic and very uh, practical, right? Dealing with the realities of life, racism in America. And students stuck in the head and, you know, and going to Dairy Queen and all the other things a 13-year-old likes to do. I, I keep meaning to, to, track, to track this guy down. I'm sure I'd be very interested to see what he's like. As a, there's a lot of wisdom for a 13-year-old uh, man. So, so to think about your intention. Like, what, what is it, what, what guides you as you go back in your life? You know, maybe, you know, like the, the Dalai Lama, it's kindness, right? He says, if, if I have to choose between emptiness and kindness, I choose kindness. It's not about temples. It's not about chanting and worshipping. and It's about how you live your life in a very practical way.
So we, 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 we were, we're informed by wisdom, we're informed by love, metta, kindness, and we're informed also by non-clinging. The Buddha said, if there's one thing to remember, that nothing whatsoever is to be clung to. Nothing is to be held onto. This state, this moment, this experience, this body, this anything. My, my, the, the, the version that I like of that from Mary Oliver, where she expands a little bit on that, 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 that capacity of letting go, she says, um, to live in this world, you need to do three things. To love what is mortal, right? so we respect it, we love, we appreciate what's here. Uh, we hold on to it as if our own life depends on it. And then when the time comes to let it go, we let it go. Right? So we appreciate it, we're present, respect it, and we can also let go, which we, of course, we have to do all the time, and we will have to do as we die. We'll have to let go of everything. So we practice now. So what in your life needs more wisdom, or needs more love, or needs more letting go? We all have places that are hard for us to open, hard for us to see clearly, hard for us to release. So those guidelines that we took at the beginning of the course, the the five guidelines, to refrain from non-harming, from not taking that which isn't offered, to, in this case, why sexuality or celibacy and uh, why speech and not taking intoxicants. These are great um, uh, guidelines for life. And the Buddha taught them a lot to, to folks like us, lay people, living with complex decisions, you know, how to navigate uh, the world and money and livelihood and all the various nitty-gritty things that we have to navigate. He said... All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind or an impure mind and trouble will follow you like a shadow. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with a pure mind and happiness will follow you as your shadow unshakable. So we work with our mind. We work with our intention. So, and then we come to just the first principle. Imagine what the world would be like if, if the world just followed one of these guidelines, to refrain from harming any other living thing. It would be a very different world. We would be unrecognizable world without war and rape and violence and conflict. And yet it, it gets complicated, right? It's, of course, you're not going to kill anybody, hopefully. Uh, you might feel like killing somebody at times, you know. Even if they're just breathing too loud, sometimes you feel like killing them. You know? <laughs> or they come into late to the meditation, I can't believe they did that again. I'm going to murder them if they do that again. Um, you know, so you know, the seeds are there. You know, we might not actually act it out, hopefully. Um, but it's complicated. I'm, I'm in, in the process of uh, looking uh, for a house and um, you know, looking at properties and getting the pest report. And there's termites here and there's you know, all kinds of critters there. And, and um, you know... This principle of non-harming, and if I want this house to stay standing, I have to, you know, do a termite, uh, get the termite guys in, you know, exterminators. How do we feel about that? You know, where when the, the sister sent IMS once had an outbreak of cockroaches, 
uh, and it was actually quite, it was not just an outbreak, it was actually an infestation for a long time. So at night you'd be doing your walking meditation, you know, very tiptoeing around the cockroaches, you know. <laughs> no tulips were happening there in the, in the north, northeastern winter. It was, you know, the most loved cockroaches on the planet. You know, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you, may you leave the building. <laughs> And, you know, at some point they had, you know, the health, you know, there's there's, there's a kitchen, they were were all over the place, it was really gross. And at some point, you know, they were a big organization, they had to, you know, they were going to shut down, so they had to get the term, you know, they 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 got psychics in, they they had sugar trails out into the forest, they had, you know, all kinds of stuff, and at some point it's like, okay, we have to, you know, we have to kill the, the cockroaches, otherwise we can't, you know. So, I don't know if there's humane cockroach traps, you know. Like, like the mice, we have lots of humane mice traps here, which is a, you know, and here, I mean, it's a beautiful thing. You have these humane mice traps, and then the, the, the caretakers drill holes and they put those water feeders in so the, the mice don't dehydrate. Uh, you know, it's very sweet. <laughs> oh, good, water. <laughs> I'm sure they come back the next day. Oh, water! <laughs> but that's you know that's the expression of kindness. You know, it's a vegetarian food. You know, we make our choices. You know, there's a, a green group here where we're looking at divestment. How do we how do we make our, our investments more ethical? And getting out of the energy industries and other industries that are causing harm. And and we we're finding it's very very complicated actually. Uh, as an organization to do that, as many of you are nodding, so you probably explored that. Um, and it's a really healthy thing to do. You know, there's, we, everything that we do has impact, including what we do with our money, what we buy, where we invest, if we have money to invest. Right? And so to, to be aware of the, the power of, of karma and impact, that what we do does make a difference, especially what we do with our money, what we do with our time, I always love the stories of the Thai monks in, in, in Thailand who, you know, and this is, I think, in the 80s, 70s and the 80s, you know, they went about ordaining these massive old-growth trees because you know, they lost, you know, I don't know, 90-some percent of their, their um, old-growth forests, uh, the hardwoods, you know, for our nice little coffee tables or whatever they were getting used for. And um, so they would ordain these trees as a way of protecting them. From, from the loggers. So different ways that our, our practice can manifest through, through understanding our interconnectedness, which is really one of the essence of Dharma practice, which is why we live ethically, because uh, uh, whatever we do makes a difference. Some of your intention, as you're informed by opening the heart, maybe to, to think and reflect about how you want to serve. How do you want to use your time and your wisdom and your practice and, 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 and you offer that more in the world in, in some way or other. So, and then just to, just to mention briefly the other, the other precepts, the, the precept of not, not harming, uh, not taking that which hasn't been offered. Again, what a radical world we would be in if that didn't if we didn't need that you know i remember recently uh when i was at, again at ims uh I, I was teaching a retreat just after they'd had a series of break-ins 
And uh, here, like there, we never had locks on the doors anywhere. People would come in, you know, and even down there in the bookstore with all these jewelry and Buddhas and there's no locks on the door and people, you know, it's an honor system and a trust system. And after a series of break-ins, they had to put locks on the door. And it felt very different to suddenly have a lock on the bedroom door. You know, it was such a sweet feeling. And we've done the same here out of a somewhat precautionary um, uh, offering. I don't know if anybody actually uses them. I've never gotten a key, but it's there for the taking. Um, but it's interesting to see what happens when, we, when there is that spirit of uh, trust and, and a sense of relaxation. And of course, all these, all these ethical precepts have the opposite. So the, the, the practice of non-harming, the opposite is kindness. The, the opposite of not taking that which hasn't been freely offered is generosity. The, the power of generosity, the power of giving, the power of service, beautiful thing in this life. The Buddha said, giving brings joy in forming the intention to be generous in the actual act of giving and in remembering the fact that we have given. It's a beautiful way to reflect on our goodness, to be generous, to be kind. The the practice of contentment, Lao Lao Tzu said, they who know that enough is enough will always have enough. They who know that enough is enough will always have enough. Oh, if that was sewn into the Constitution somehow. (laughs) That is not happening in consumer culture uh, around the world. So in the third guideline is around sexuality. Very powerful force in our lives, in our bodies, in the culture. Um, And here we take the practice of celibacy as a way of just not even really giving, feeding the energy. Of course, it doesn't mean it goes away. It just means we're not, we're not actively feeding it. So, um, and we don't talk that much about sexuality, but it doesn't mean it's not going on. Right? And I often get complaints. How come you don't talk about sex? Like, it's all I think about is fantasies and, and, and these cute people on retreat. And, you know, and, um, and it's a great place to work with your mind. Desire, wanting, longing, comparing, feeling the energy. I've done a lot of practice in my own retreats about shifting, as we do with most of the obsessive places we get to, shifting from the content, from the story, from the fantasy, from the ideation, to what's that energy feel like? What's it feel to feel the raw power of lust, of sexuality, which is an aliveness, it's a fullness, it's an energy, it's powerful. And it can be used skillfully or unskillfully. As Jack often says when he's talking about sexuality in a class, hands up someone who hasn't made a mistake in the realm of sexuality. Right? Like Jesus asking to throw the first stone, those who haven't committed sin. Not that it's a sin, but that's another story. Uh, one of my teachers was a monk in Thailand, and he was uh, there was a lot of old older monks, and there was one particular old monk who'd been there since he was five or six, and he was about ninety. And uh, and my friend was always fascinated by these older guys, and he said, "So what? You know, what, what do you think about? You know, you've lived your life as a monk. You're in the forest, simple life. You know, everything's taken care of. You're at the last phase of your life. You know, what what's what? What do you contemplate?" 
He says, mostly sex. (laughs) Celebrate his whole life. You know, but it's a strong force, right? It's, 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 it's part of human nature. So we want to bring our mindfulness practice to that as much as anything. It's a beautiful expression of, of being human, cultivation of intimacy and love, and, and uh, there's a lot of awakening can happen through sex, and a lot of harm and pain and suffering. Right? As we can look back from our past, we've probably been on both ends of that spectrum, right? So to, to bring care to this, this very rich area, and which may also be the practice of contentment if you're single or you're celibate and you're, or you're you know, non-sexual for whatever reason. So we will release you from the celibacy precept tomorrow morning. Be sure to remind us that, to do that so you're free to... Um, you know, go forth... Um, the fourth guideline to refrain from uh, unwise speech. Right? So we've been in silence. It's pretty easy here, <laughs> except the chatter in your mind. You know? So we'll talk more about uh, wise speech tomorrow. There's actually the cartoon I was going to show. Where is it? This is this is this is what you don't do when you go home. Dear Kirby, there's a guy who gets home from a day of work, no pin to the door, not, doesn't look good. After all these years of meditation, and in spite of your endless ridicule, I have finally rich, achieved universal consciousness. I have transcended to a higher plane. I am everywhere, nowhere, non-existent and eternal, all being, all seeing and all knowing. You, on the other hand, can go suck an egg. <laughs> so I don't imagine you were going to go home and do that, but you know... Um, you know, but it, again, it's a whole, it's a whole huge area of our lives. You know, and the Buddha talked a lot about wise speech because it's such a area that's fraught. It's so easy, right, to get reactive, to be hurt, to say things we regret. You, know, you can you can always see, see the words and you want to pull them back. No, I didn't say that. Right? And that's where mindfulness is such a great support, right? Because we have presence. We can tolerate more emotional reactivity, and we can create more space. So there's a little space between the feeling, the reaction, and the verbalization of it. Not always, but there's a lot more capacity. I've really valued this tremendously, especially in intimate relationships where you know things get really heated, really can get really heated really quickly, um, and being able to tolerate the intensity of feelings of feeling wronged or judged or shamed or indignant or wrongly accused and all the stuff that can come up really powerfully and, and, and the, appreciating the power of the practice to be able to sit in it, to not need to vent or lash out or retaliate and just you know breathe. And then you eventually realize yeah, they're right, actually. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> yeah, I'll think about that next time. So, many, many things to say. So, and then just to finish off the precept conversation, so the refraining from intoxicants and, and a way of expanding that is to think about intoxicants as whatever we take in, right? whatever we take into our lives. And we take in a lot. We take in people, we take in media, we take in a lot of stimulation, we take in 
substances, we take in uh, energy, we take in environments. And so to be mindful of what you take in. Uh, you know, how many hours is it on Facebook or on Instagram or on uh, world news that's just thoroughly and utterly overwhelming, depressing, that you feel uh, catatonic at the end of listening to, you know, or whatever it is that you or people that 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 are um, uh, so caught in their reactivity that it it it's, it just infuses you with the same negativity. So to be mindful of what what you what you take in in a large way. So maybe that's enough words for now. Um, just to <clears throat> um, again come back to this idea of um, trusting in your practice, trusting in what you know, and all we have is the next moment. All we have is this moment, actually. So we can make a big plan and a big schema and intentions and grandiose ambitions. And it's like, how am I right now, right here, this moment, this moment of awareness, this appearance within it? So let's sit for a moment. If you would grow to your best self, be patient, not demanding, accepting, not condemning, nurturing, not withholding, self-marveling, not belittling, gently guiding, not pushing and punishing. For you are more sensitive than you know. Mankind is tough as war, yet delicate as flowers. We can endure agonies but open fully only to warmth and light. And I need to grow as fragile as a fragrance, dispersed by storms of will, returning when the storms are still. So accept and respect, attend your sensitivity. A flower cannot be opened with a hammer. 
So thank you for your attention. So we'll have some sitting and uh, last evening sit at nine and some something. Some sitting and something. <laughs> okay. Uh, there will be some information left on this back table here. Um, I'll bring some flyers over and things of things I have coming up in a minute. And um, just, you know, stay here. Right? It's easy to already be leaving, planning, right? Take care of this moment. The, the moment, the future will take care of itself. And just keep, just keep staying here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.